You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there to Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Um, If you do not have a copy of the scriptures, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible in your home, please take that with you. That is a gift from us today. We want you to have a copy of God's word. Um, So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I'm glad that you're here. I want to welcome you, especially if it's your first time. Just want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. My name is Court, and I'm one of the pastors here at Providence. Um, Like Jenna said, we've been making our way through the fall, uh, and we've been working through the book of Jonah. And so we've it's a four chapter book. It's pretty short and uh, pretty concise. And but we've what we've tried to do is take a little bit of time to slow down where we need to slow down and speed up where we can and kind of walk through this book that's often taught in children's ministry, but has a lot to say about who we are today as Christians, who the church is, who God is, and how we should be interacting with the culture around us. That's why we called it a timely tale, because I thought, you know, as we were kind of working through which sermon series we would work through in the fall, I thought this would be a great sermon series to talk about today. And so this morning, what we're going to do is start our very last chapter and uh, make our way towards the end of Jonah. And what I'd like to do is to pray and to ask the Spirit to speak to us through God's Word. And so if you'll bow your heads, I want to I wanna pray for us. Father, thank you. First, we want to thank you that we've been given such a wonderful privilege to be here now and to openly and freely worship you, not just in song, but in the opening of your Word. Holy Spirit, we invite you now, would you illuminate your word, make it clear to us what you have said, what you are saying, and what you would have us do with the truth that is contained there. Jesus, we look to you because the Bible itself leads us to you, not, and it's not an, an end in of itself, it's leading us to you, Jesus, and so we ask that you would help us to be not just motivated, but deeply convicted and convinced that you are worthy of our worship this morning. No matter what circumstances we may have walked in with, Jesus, you are King and Lord, and we're so grateful that you sit on a throne and all authority has been given to you. And so we humble ourselves now. We ask for great clarity in our lives and help as we read your word. Give us the humility necessary to hear from you, we ask. In Jesus' good name, amen. Amen. So I want to read quickly Jonah's response here, just to give you a a little recap of where we've been. Last week, Ty 
kind of talked what I what I consider to be the real crux of the whole book, which is the repentance and revival of Nineveh. So it's all been kind of leading up to that. Uh, God's been working with Jonah. It's it's interesting, you know, the centerpiece of the book of Jonah is not actually the city of Nineveh for the most part. It's God's interaction with the prophet that he sends to Nineveh, even though if you're going to ask what's the greatest action or the greatest result of the book of Jonah, it's most assuredly the repentance of the Assyrian great city Nineveh and what could be considered one of the greatest revivals, if not the greatest revival in human history, that a whole city from, from the king all the way to the lowest peasant ends up repenting and coming back to God. It's an incredible scene that you see in the book of Nineveh. And yet God focuses, the book focuses heavily on God's interaction with Jonah. And so we got to the crux of it last week, which was that Jonah finally does make his way to Nineveh after taking the long way around, which if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you probably have taken the long way around in obedience to God at least once. Uh, and you kind of can, can jive with Jonah in this way. So he takes the long way around, finds his way to Nineveh, and he preaches. He gets a, a day into this city, which the Bible records is a, is a three-day journey in breadth and begins to preach this message that judgment is coming to Nineveh. And surprising to the reader, but what we find out is not surprising to Jonah, is that these people repent. They hear it, they believe the word. You gotta remember, this is a pagan city. This is not like he's going to Jerusalem. He's not going into his own, into his own people. He's going to a very pagan city, and they believe God, and they repent from the greatest to the least. And there's a massive revival that, that ensues. Now, we pick up in chapter number four, and it's, you know, from the moment I first read this story as a child, and, and even still today, it seems a little bit unbelievable as to how Jonah responds, even after having been in the belly of the whale, being humbled by God, recognizing his need for mercy, and he still responds in this way. But I want to spend some time because I think that if we can do a little historical work and consider Jonah's response, it might make sense to us, then maybe be helpful to us. So I just want to read his response and then talk a little bit about why he might feel this way. So starting in verse 1, you got to picture Jonah. He stands outside the city. He's kind of setting up his, I've heard a pastor say, you know, he sets up his beach chair watching, waiting for the, the fireworks show. You know, he's like kind of ready for the judgment. And here's what he says. When God, whenever Jonah hears that these people have repented and that God had relented of his disaster, this is what the Bible says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. So this guy is basically saying, now this is important every time I had heard the book of Jonah taught when I was a child, and I think there might have been a, maybe a little bit of, of truth to this, but I don't think it's the primary truth. Whenever that question was asked, why did Jonah run from the presence of God? The answer was always because he was scared. But that's not what the Bible records. The Bible doesn't say Jonah's scared to go to Nineveh because it's a big bad city and they might kill him, although that's true. It says here that Jonah himself says, God, I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I knew you'd show them mercy. That's a different reason. And, and it makes you kind of think, man, Jonah's kind of being a jerk here, right? It's like, man, that's, a, that's, that's mean, I mean, if, if, you're, if your kids are listening, you know, means a euphemism. It's, it's more than that, right? He says, God, I knew you were going to do this. And that's why I, when I ran to Tarshish, I was running to Tarshish in the hopes that no one would ever preach to these people. So you'd just finish them off. And I knew that if I went there and I preached what you told me, that you would show mercy to them. Now, when you look at this, you might say, who could be angry about revival? Like, 
Who gets mad whenever people, I mean, if you're a Christian in the room, it's like, we always celebrate when people cry. It's like, oh, look, they're crying in church. It's happening. You know, we're all happy about it. <laughs> we're weird in that way, but we understand what's happening. Someone coming to, you know, there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a reflection of God's heart. The Bible says in Zechariah, I believe, that God rejoices and dances over every sinner who repents. You know, stands up in his throne and rejoices over the sinner who comes back. So how could you be angry about revival? In order, in order to understand Jonah, you have to do some historical work in the Bible as to what's happening in his time, in his day, in Israel. Jonah lived in the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel. And Jeroboam II was an evil king. He was not a righteous king. And during his reign, the Bible records that, quote, the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. That's 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 26. So in the reign of Jeroboam II, Israel is under massive oppression from their bordering nations. The bordering nations like Syria and Assyria were being hatefully oppressive to Israel during the time of Jonah. And the Bible records that Jonah prophesied in 2 Kings to the king Jeroboam and that God gave this evil king mercy and allowed him to fortify the borders of Israel. Now, here's what's impossible for us to know historically. Did Jonah's prophecy to Assyria come before the borders were fortified or did it come after the borders were fortified? Another way to put that would be, did, did Jonah go to the king and the king fortified the borders of Israel and now God sends him to Nineveh and that's why he's so mad about going? Or is it the inverse? God sends Jonah to Nineveh and then the Assyrians repent, which allows the Israelites to actually fortify their borders because the Assyrians aren't so hostile. What we know is that historically, if you look into the ancient history of the Assyrian kingdom, is there's about a 40 to 60 year period where these, these very violent evil, barbarian warriors decide they're just, you know, we're just not going to fight anymore for like 40 years at this time. <laughs> Meaning that this whole revival led to something because they didn't end up going to war for a whole generation after this. Now, the point is not whether or not it was before or after. One thing is certain, Jonah would have seen the Assyrians not just as an evil and wicked people, which is the way we read it thousands of years later, but as a sworn enemy of Israel. That's how he would have seen them. These are the people we fight against. These are the people that we battle against. These are the people our children go to war against. These are the people that we shed blood to fight. And the Assyrian Empire would have seen him the same. They're openly hostile to Israel. And so it's not a shock that Jonah would be displeased at God showing mercy to these people because he had grown up and lived his entire life seeing them as his enemies. And they had done plenty to make him feel that way, okay? He wanted them to be destroyed in the same way that a child that maybe was born on 9-11 would have looked at a terrorist and say, yeah, I want them to be destroyed, right? That's how he feels. Times that by a lot more, that's how he would feel. Now, what does that tell us about God? Well, let's think about this. The heart of man looks at a rebellious and hostile people, his own enemies, people who have wronged him, and desires judgment and destruction for them. The heart of God looks directly in the face of rebellion and those who have wronged him and desires to give them mercy. That's, there's, a, there's a big juxtaposition between Jonah and God here because God's really the one offended by Nineveh, not Jonah. Jonah's taken offense because he's been hurt, but no one's been more offended by the sinfulness of man than God, and yet God wants to extend mercy. And so there's, a, there's kind of a standoff here between Jonah and God. Now, why is Jonah's anger kindled? It's kindled primarily because 
Jonah is putting more stock in his ethnic identity than in his spiritual identity, which would have been very common in Israel. It's so common that Jesus has to fight this when he shows up and begins talking with the Pharisees. John the Baptist fought it too when the the Israelites are getting in line for baptism, and he says, the axe is laid to the root of every tree that does not bear forth fruit, meaning if you're Jewish by birth but you don't bear fruit like a Jew, then you need to get out of the baptism line. That's what he was preaching, which would have been very, very controversial. But Jonah's mad because he's got his ethnic identity attached as a primary and his spiritual identity as a secondary. He's an Israelite first and a son of God second. And in so doing, what he does, he makes the Ninevites Assyrians first, image bearers of God second. Do you catch this? It starts with them. It bleeds over into the Assyrian kingdom. It permits him to have an inhumane disgust for these people that God wants to show mercy to. He doesn't see them as humans. If you watch Jonah from the start, even the way he treats the sailors and talks to the sailors all the way throughout the book, he doesn't like these people. He doesn't like being around them. He doesn't, he doesn't want them to be shown mercy. And it's because he's already dehumanized them in his heart. I just want to make mention, our, our current cultural moment has given us great opportunity for anger like Jonah's anger here. And the reason is because our anger can be fueled by the multiple media outlets that portray new enemies for us to hate on the screens every single day. That anger can be carried with us every day because there's new groups of people that we can be mad about. And then in order to decide which enemy you should hate, our cultural leaders have decided to teach us that we must first decide which group we're going to belong to and which group we're going to identify with so that now that we've decided which group we belong to, then we can be indoctrinated and faithfully sworn against the enemies of the other group. Once we know who our enemy is, then our anger can be kindled by rolling headlines in order for us to swiftly dehumanize the people of the other group. And that's what's happening in our culture right now. So just like Jonah was ethnically tied first to being an Israelite, and second to his humanity as an image bearer of God, as a spiritual son, he did the same to others. They were Assyrians first and not image bearers of God. And we too now have decided that we would take a cultural narrative, even the church is doing this, and saying that we're anything before we're sons and daughters of God. That's trouble. Now, of course, belonging to a group is something that we will do, and it's a natural human tendency. The fundamental question that we can't get away from is what stands first? What is primary? What's your primary identity? We must derive identity from Christ or we're always going to be doomed to tribalism, anger, resentment, and bitterness. This is why Christ's message was revolutionary when he shows up to the Roman kingdom and Paul starts saying things like, in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, Scythian nor slave, male nor female, but in Christ we're one. That was a powerful message. He was saying something about our identity as sons and daughters of God being primary now that we're in Christ. And so I think here in Jonah, in the book of Jonah, God's laying the framework for the gospel to go forward as he does various times throughout the Old Testament. You see, the Jews would have expected for Jonah to be a prophet to Israel to see revival there. It was very unexpected for God to send Jonah to the Assyrians and then for them to see the revival that most likely a prophet like Jonah wanted to see in his own hometown, but wasn't seeing it. And this happens all throughout the scriptures, right? There's this idea that God would have mercy on pagan nations, even though the Jews wouldn't accept this. 
The promise of Abraham was this, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing. And through you, all of the nations of the earth, the families of the earth will be blessed. That was God's original promise to Abraham. Not just that Abraham would be blessed and his children, but that through his children, all of the nations would be blessed. You see this later worked out when Joseph is blessed, or Egypt is blessed by Joseph because Joseph gets rises to the second to Pharaoh and they're saved from a famine by Joseph. You also see this with Ruth, who is blessed by Naomi. She's brought into the fold and becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Christ, even though she's a Moabite woman. You see this with the Shunammite woman that is blessed by Elisha whenever she is basically at her last bit of oil and Elisha shows up and says, can I stay at your house? And that oil lasts the entire time he stays. You see this with the evil king Naaman, who's got leprosy and he's healed by Elisha. It's all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus actually quotes some of the things that I just said to the Pharisees. It's one of the reasons they wanted to kill him. They were not pleased with this message, that somehow Christ would come and the Messiah would say that he has an interest in showing mercy to all peoples, even the ones you don't like, even the ones that aren't a part of your group. So God starts to reveal his plan here, I think, in Jonah. And this interaction in chapter 4 that he has with Jonah, it foreshadows the interaction that Jesus is going to have with every single Pharisee and scribe when he shows up which is, why are you angry at me showing mercy to your other brothers? Because they don't see the Assyrians as brothers. The Assyrians are less than human to them. And that's Jesus' problem. Okay, now the key question comes in verse four. The key question from God here, how, how should God respond to this? God, God sends Jonah. It's a great success. The sermon's successful. People, everybody's at the altar. The king himself, right? And the guy that you sent to preach the message is mad. And not just mad, but says, kill me. It's better, think about this, it's better for me to die than for you to show mercy to those people. That's so intense, right? How should God respond? I love how he responds. This is often how the Lord handles things. So after Jonah says this, listen to what he says in verse four. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Okay, I wanna spend the rest of our time with that question. Do you do well to be angry? If you're a parent, have you ever asked, have you ever done this to your child? There's nothing more frustrating, I think, especially as your kids get older. You ask them a question like this because it, it, it's, uh, it's wise. This is always how, for instance, uh, God shows up in the garden in Genesis and says, Adam, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? These are all questions that God knows the answers to. Uh, how about Cain? Cain, why is your face fallen? If you, don't, if you do what is acceptable, will you not be received? These are all questions God knows the answers to. He's teaching us, shepherding us, fathering us, loving us. That's what he does to Jonah here. Even though he has every right to kind of squash Jonah in his own judgment, how, how dare you be mad that I showed mercy to these people? But he doesn't. It's a question of wisdom. Notice that God does not take the line of questioning like this. He doesn't say, why are you angry, Jonah? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, do you have a good reason to be angry, Jonah? He doesn't ask that. He asks, do you do well to be angry? Meaning, do you think you're making a good call here? Is this helpful to you? Does this lead to life? At the very top, I think the question looks something like, do you do well to be angry about this? And do you do well would be something like when Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that there's the blessed life that the disciples can have. Blessed are those, blessed are those. That's the life lived well. And he's asking Jonah, are you living the life lived well here by being angry about this? Okay, so now that we understand why Jonah's angry, I want to spend time answering this question. Do you do well to be angry? And I want to start with just this simple point. You need to stop trusting your anger. All of us, we need to stop trusting our anger. 
Anger can be a righteous emotion when it is stirred by God and it follows the righteousness of God. There is such a thing as righteous anger. And so I'm not saying that anger should never be trusted. I'm saying on the whole, you need to stop trusting your anger at an e-jerk. We know that anger can be a righteous emotion for two obvious reasons in the text. Number one is that God is motivated by his righteous anger to bring judgment on Nineveh for their evil. So there's God's righteous anger. Also, if you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus did things like, you know, he fashioned a whip to beat people out of the temple. If you have enough anger to sit down and make your own whip, it means that it wasn't, you know, off the handle. This, he thought about this, okay? So anger can be righteous and anger can be an emotion that we ought to give vent to. But anger is also an unwieldy emotion that seeks to consume you and own you. You see, God wields the sword of anger righteously because he rules over it. For man, it rules you, and it wields you like a sword so that you would consume all those that are in your path. You and I have said things when we're angry that we had no business saying. If you're married, this is true of you. You don't have to nod your head. You've done things when you're angry that when you came to reality, when you snapped out of it, you were ashamed that you even attempted at doing that thing. When you give full vent to your anger, it leads to destruction, it leads to quarrels, it leads to murder, it leads to strife. But harboring your anger internally and never dealing with it, it leads to an internal destruction, bitterness, resentment, depression. See, sometimes we think that we're being wise because we don't lash out at everyone externally, but we never actually deal with our anger by bringing it to God. We just internalize it, and then we're depressed, and we're resentful, and we're bitter, and everything in our life gets poisoned by the well of anger. Now, the Bible's full of examples of God's anger being kindled against sin and injustice. So what should we do then with anger? Well, I have a few things. First is to recognize that there's a difference between the anger of God and the anger of man. You see, anger threatens to control a man, to rule over a man, wielding him like the sword to devour others, while God rules over anger, and his anger is expressed perfectly and righteously. One way to say this is to, is to say, to be perfect in anger, you would also have to be perfect in justice, meaning that you, ha- we, you would have to see the whole world perfectly and know exactly what's right and wrong in order to perfectly wield anger, because anger comes on the heels of an injustice. It's wielded against injustice and evil, but you and I have tainted views of what's right and wrong, don't we? It's why you wield your anger at your wife, because you think she's wrong, man, And then like an hour and a half later, you're like, well, maybe I was wrong. But you can't mention it. You know, you're like, no, I'm still right. But in your head, you're like, yeah, I was was probably wrong about that. Three months later, you'll like mutter it while she's asleep in the car on a road trip. You know, that way you got your confession out. But you and I are tainted in our view of what justice is. Because in the moment, we see justice through the eyes of a selfish, sinful, broken human being who wants justice for self. Justice means you've, you've offended me. And here's the truth. Sometimes you're offended because it's right for you to be offended. And yet you're wielding your anger. Now, God is different because God's always righteous. He's always holy. He sees things perfectly. So if he's provoked to anger, he can wield it rightly, and he always will. But then men... And women, we are unrighteous. And if we're provoked to anger, we have to be reticent to immediately trust that emotion. It's often the case that your anger has not been provoked unrighteously, but your anger has been provoked, the book of James says, because your sinful desires have been stepped on, and now you're angry. The book of James chapter 1, this is what James says in verse 20. He says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Since anger and judgment are inextricably tied, it's no wonder that man cannot wield that without the help of the Spirit. And what it produces is bad fruit, not good fruit. Notice it's not saying the anger of God that manifests itself through the Spirit's help in the life of, some, of a man of God or a woman of God who stands up against that injustice. It says the anger of man, our sinful proclivity towards anger, to take justice into our own hands. Notice this, to sit on God's throne and to wield justice. It doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 22, this is what Solomon says. He says that the angry man stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. Anger leads to resentment, resentment leads to bitterness. Bitterness seeks to take root in your heart and cause your soul to shrivel so that it might squeeze all the joy, all the hope, all the peace, all the love, all the faith out of you. That's why the book of James says that anger does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, it doesn't produce good fruit, the fruit of the spirit. It produces the opposite. Now, the ultimate danger of anger. Now, listen up. This is the most important part because this is what you see with Jonah. The ultimate danger of anger that's unchecked is that this kind of folly always will lead you to turn your anger towards God and away from your neighbor. It starts with your neighbor, but it all ultimately will always lead you to turn your anger against God. The book of Proverbs 19.3 says this. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. You see this? A man's own foolishness and anger leads his way to destruction. And what does he do? He gets mad at God about it. Notice what Jonah does here. Jonah has been, just been fuming. He's been living in this harbored resentment. And who is he angry at? He's displeased, but no longer can he be displeased at the Assyrians because now they've repented. Who's he displeased at? God. And that's at the very heart of why Jonah was mad in the first place. But sometimes we're unwilling to admit that our anger towards our wife, our anger towards our kids, our anger towards our fellow employees, our anger towards our neighbors is really because deep down we're angry at God. And it always manifests itself because that's the end game of anger, to consume until you turn your anger to God. You see, Jonah had all this anger and resentment toward the Assyrians, but it leads him to this moment where God mercifully opens his eyes and out of his own mouth he says, I'm displeased, I'm mad at you, I'd rather you kill me than you keep making me live like this. Why? Because God's too merciful to Jonah, in Jonah's eyes. Can you, can you just think about this for a second? He's saying you're being too merciful to these people. You're too slow to anger. And Jonah's anger has been accepted in harbor for so long that he's no longer just at odds with the Assyrians, he's at odds with his maker. By trusting your own anger for too long, by harboring it for too long, what happens is you slowly but surely start to take the seat of God on his throne of judgment, and you even willfully and pridefully start to judge him. You notice that Jonah's taking the seat of judgment and now that he's judged all of his neighbors, there's only one last place for him to go and he starts judging God's performance. You ever done this in your own life or maybe you have a friend that's talked to you like this? It's where you question suffering in your life and now you're questioning, how, like, why would God allow us if, if I, you know, how could God do this? How could God rule the world like this? It's a very real experience that humans have, but we don't recognize the blasphemy of us saying that we could do it better if we ruled the universe. That's really what we're saying. That if God had our infinite wisdom, he'd do it better. Sinful anger, when it comes to full form, it always ends in the inversion of Eden. 
you want your God to be in your image, so you just take his throne, versus you accepting that you were created in the image of God and under his authority. So there's an inversion that happens. And the same kind of you know, treason that Satan wanted to take the throne, so then he ended up leading Eve to try to take the throne and Adam to take the throne. What happens when anger takes its full form and root into your heart is you try to take the throne in your own life. And you end up judging not just your neighbors and everybody around you, but you judge God. Now, there's another side to this. God gives praise to those who mirror him by being slow to anger. Listen to this. This is Proverbs 16, 23. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. So God says that true power is not submitting to your anger, but imitating God by ruling over your anger. True power is exerted in the Christian's life by being slow to anger as God is slow to anger. The only way that we do this is to trust God with all of our resentment, bitterness, anger, frustration at our neighbor and entrust the judgment to him. This is why Paul said, never take vengeance for yourself because God said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Paul said that we should never exert our anger trying to make justice on our own behalf, but to entrust it to God. Okay, so the last part here. What else is this question? If for one, it's a, hey, consider your own anger. Number two, it's an invitation. It's not just a rebuke, it's an invite. The anger of Jonah has led him to this place where now he's at odds with God and he's sitting outside of the city. And I want to say that if you think that I could never get to you, maybe you just have these like little things in your life that you're angry about. And you're like, I'm never going to get to the place where I'm mad at God. Listen to me, anger has no limiting principle. Like anger doesn't have brakes. It only has gas pedal. And it will go as far as, as, as far as you're willing to let it go, it will go. And only by the grace of God do the brakes end up coming. It devours, it's a consuming fire, it looks for everything. Now, I want to bring your attention to something that I've been, re- I've, been try- I've been holding back on talking about the whole book because it's all over the place in the book of Jonah. And it's a parallel between the book of Jonah and a parable in the New Testament called the prodigal son parable. It's really the tale of two sons, but you guys are familiar with this. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. It's the book of Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. As you're turning there, I'll kind of give you a little background on what's happening here. Jesus has a crowd of people with him. The Bible records in the very beginning of Luke 15 that there's really two major groups that are represented. The first group that's represented are the scribes and the Pharisees. These would be the religious leaders of the day who were very zealous about the law, very zealous about the Bible. They were zealous about doing the righteous things according to the way of the tradition. And they often had interactions with Jesus and had troubles with some of, the, some of the things that he would do or say. The other group are the sinners and the tax collectors is what the Bible says. Now, this is much different in our day. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but the sinners and, and tax collectors would have been a group of people despised by the Pharisees and the scribes because they would have represented an outright rejection of God and all of the traditions and all of the cultural mores. And in particular, they would have been sinful filth. Tax collectors had denied their Israelite heritage. They had partnered with Rome and gotten money and funding in order to basically keep the oppression going on their brothers. They were just gross to the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus, as he typically does, brought these people together to listen to him preach. And he tells a parable about two sons. I'm going to focus on the older brother part of it. But the parable of of the prodigal son starts with, a father had two sons, an older and a younger. And the younger came to him and said, Father, I want my inheritance now. I want to leave. 
And the father gives him his inheritance and he goes out and squanders it with prostitutes and, and, and wayward living. And he basically lives his life in, in evil destruction. One day he wakes up and he's basically sleeping with the pigs. And he says, I, I, in my father's house, I would, you know, I, even if I was a servant, I'd live better than this. And so he comes back. And he basically has this speech where he's going to apologize to his father. And his father sees him afar off, runs, kisses him, gives him his own robe, gives him his, 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 the family ring, and says, we're going to throw a party for my son. He's back. And it's just baffling, right, this grace that the father shows to his son that has squandered the wealth. Now, we're going to pick up the story with the older brother. And before I do, I want you to know, Jonah plays both parts. He's the older and the younger brother. We've already went through the younger brother scenario where he ran away and found himself in the belly of the whale and God was the father that brought him back as he was vomited on the sea and said, you're still gonna go out and be my prophet, my boy, my son. But he also plays the role of the older brother and that's what we're gonna focus on here. Okay, Luke chapter number 15, starting in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. This is Jesus speaking. And as he came and drew near to the house, The older brother, remember, the older brother has been faithful to his dad the whole time. He's been in the field working his tail off while his brother has been off hanging out in Broadway, right? His his brother's been in Vegas spending all the money. He's been working. He shows up. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and he asked him what these things meant, (laughs) meaning he's like baffled. Why is there music? He said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, listen to the Jonah analogy. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out, this is God coming out to Jonah outside the city, and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Maybe Jonah might be saying, I've served you all my life. You never give Israel any sort of revival. I've been praying for that. None of that. But... When this son of yours came, notice this, he won't even call him his own brother, right? Who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And the father said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. In the exact same way that this parable ends, Jonah, the book of Jonah will end too. It's very open-ended. We don't get to know how Jonah's going to respond to this interaction between him and God. And in the same way, you don't really get the the older brother. We don't know. It's open-ended because Jesus is basically offering this up to the Pharisees and the scribes. They still have the choice. There's not an end to the story because they have to make the decision. Will they come in and celebrate that the tax collectors and the sinners are coming back to the Lord? Or are they still going to be angry that he would dare even sit with them? Will Jonah come back and celebrate because God has brought the Assyrians back to their knees in worship of God, and will he enter into the joy of his father, or will he continue to stand outside the city and be angry? You see, anger eliminates the possibility for relationship and community. That's why you see here with the older brother, when this son of yours showed back up, he's not even his brother anymore. It's like, that's your son, not my brother. Anger paves the way for dehumanization, He devoured your property with prostitutes. He's basically saying he's filth. That's who he is. He's your son and he's filth. That's all he's identified as. It's not his younger brother. You gotta think there's a lot more things you could identify him with, but he only identifies him with the sin. That's what Jonah's done to the Assyrians. Anger robs us from the ability to celebrate mercy and grace. The older brother refuses to even go into the party. When we're angry, 
we got to try to get down to the root of it. we got to be reflective. Angry husbands are often angry about a host of things, but it's not really your wife that you're angry at. You just think that's what you're really angry about. Angry dads are often angry about a host of things, but it's not really their kids. Angry moms, same way. We're angry because something hasn't gone right in our lives, at least to our sense of justice. Something hasn't seemed fair. Something hasn't turned out the way we think it should have. And we have a lot of people to blame about that, but it's rarely ourselves. And soon God tears all of the layers away from that. And we end up realizing that what we're really mad about is that God has permitted this in our lives, whatever it may be, small injustice or great. And then God turns to us and asks us the question, do you do well to be angry? He doesn't say, do you have a reason to be mad? He's, God's not asking you this morning, is, tell me all the reasons why you should be bitter, because you have them. You probably journal about them like I do. He knows that. The question is, do you do well to be angry? Or how about this? The invitation from the father with this question is the same invitation to his son. He says this, son, you're always with me. That's what he told the older brother. In other, in other words, no matter what the circumstances of your life are, or even if your brother does this thing to you that greatly affects you, it doesn't impact your relationship with me. You're my son. You're always with me. What else does the father say? All that is mine is your son. In other words, your brother does not dictate my promises to you. Did you know that your suffering does not dictate or or reshape or refocus or rewrite God's promises to you? He says, all that is mine is yours. That's God's promise. He says, but son, your brother was dead and now he's alive. Notice he doesn't say my other son. He reminds his older brother. He reminds his other son, your brother was dead and now he's back. In other words, if you're my son, then he's your brother. That's how it works. Now, this is the word to Jonah. If you're my son, the Assyrians are your brother. The invitation is, is it better to seethe in anger here outside the city or to come in and celebrate your brother's return with your father? This is the invite to Jonah, and it's the invite to us away from anger. Is it better for you to seethe for all that has gone wrong or to enter into the joy of your father as a son and daughter? There's reasons for all the reasons. There's all the reasons in the world why you're harboring the anger. The question is, is it, do you do well to harbor it or do you do better to come into the joy of your father and to lay that down? Because remember, as, as offended as you are, as hurt as you are, do you know who's more greatly offended by the injustices of life? It's the one who created life. God was most offended and God went to the cross. And if, I want you to remember Jesus' words before I pray, as he looks at the Roman soldiers who will soon drive their spear through his side and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In other words, he's extending the mercy and the grace in the face of those who hate him. So when God's mercy is poured out, rather than holding on to our anger, we ought to rejoice because God has extended mercy and grace to us. And then as we watch mercy and grace being extended to our brother, we celebrate and enter into the joy of our father. Why? Because all that is his is yours. All that is his is already yours. You're always with him. That's the invitation of the gospel. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us.
Father, I just want to lay before you now all of the, the anger that we know exists in our hearts or is unknown in our hearts that seeks to consume us and destroy our relationships, my God. We lay it all at your feet and we choose today together that we might enter into the joy of our Father's house. Forgive us that we've, we've figuratively been sitting outside refusing to go in. Holy Spirit, would you now help us to lay down that which seeks to really cling to our hearts? Would you do the soul surgery necessary? And God, I pray that as your gospel lands squarely upon our ears and on our hearts, that in so doing it would break up any of the bondage, uproot any of the bitterness that has sought to own us. And that as a result, my God, there would be reconciliation of friendships and family and marriages and a real peace that we can leave out of here with, my God. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.